0: Have you ever wondered what does God think of me or how does God view me in my sins and in my suffering? We see a lot of different stories in scripture of uh, crippled people who come before Jesus or come before someone else. And we can often identify with the state that these uh, poor individuals are in as they are uh, unable to walk and are unable to uh, contribute to all the different things they want to do and enjoy life to the fullest. We can often empathize with their situation, spiritually speaking, with how we feel in our sins. We wonder, could God accept someone like me, a sinner, sufferer, a spiritual crippled. Well, one of my favorite stories in scripture comes from the life of David, and it's the episode between David and Mephibosheth, who was a son of Jonathan and was a crippled man. In this story, we see how David welcomes Mephibosheth into his home, and we, we learn why. And through this, I believe that we learn how God looks at us as we are sinners and sufferers. It's a beautiful story, and so I'm excited to share my recent sermon on this passage with you. Before we get into this episode, though, let me encourage you to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcasts, so that you can have all future episodes uh, in the app that you use, right there on your homepage when they come out. Also, if you are not already subscribed to our email list, let me encourage you to do so, so that you can get all future episodes right in your inbox whenever they drop. Just visit the link in my show notes in the show notes, and you can sign up on my website. Lastly, if you were helped by this episode or any of our other ones, let me encourage you to leave, filter a rating and review, or to share this show with your friends. Leave, filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple, and also write us a review on Apple Podcasts. When you take these simple steps, it'll only take a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this episode on how God sees sinners and sufferers.
1: So, to put this in terms of, um, or or to understand the significance and uh, um, uniqueness of what's going on in this passage here, we take it for granted today that we have peaceful transitions of power, peaceful transfers of power today, right? Whenever we have uh, one government uh, moving on to another, whenever we have one administration transferring to a new administration, these things usually happen peacefully. They usually happen without any bloodshed. We have this here in America today, right? We have peaceful transfers of power from one administration to another, whether it be uh, governors, presidents, uh, mayors, or or so on. Uh, In much across the Western world, even across the Western world, in most countries today, we see that whenever there is a transfer of power from one government to the next, or one king to another, one dynasty to another, it's done peacefully. But what we need to understand is that in terms of world history, um, going back more than just a few hundred years, but going back quite far, that what we have today is incredibly unique. We just take it for granted, but we don't understand that things have not always been this way. And that historically speaking, trans- transfers of power from one dynasty to another, or one king or emperor to another, uh, or from one government to another, were usually done uh, by blood and not by votes. They were done by one, the new incoming king or dynasty slaughtering the whole family and servants and all those who are loyal to the previous one. And this is how they um, uh, uh, solidified their power and secured their new position. Even back during David's time and in the time of Israel, in the surrounding nations, this is how it was done. You gained your power by killing off everyone else who could possibly lay any claim to your throne or be any kind of a threat to your power. That's how things were done. But not in Israel. Now, we'll see whenever Israel falls away from God and, um, and, and is not faithful to him, they do start to act like the nations around them. But it was not to be that way in Israel. There was to be peaceful transfers of power that were done uh, not by blood, but were done according to the law. And we also see that being done here in Second Samuel chapter 9. David is secure, and he's resting in his power, and he says, is there anyone left in Saul's household? In this context, you're usually thinking he's making sure there's no other threats. He's making sure there's no other challengers to his throne. That's what you would be thinking. That's what all the cultural expectations would be pointing to, what, what the momentum of his kingdom would be uh, going towards. But he does something else. He's not asking, is there anyone left in Saul's household so he can eliminate those threats? But why? He says, because I want to show kindness. What is it that made Israel unique and that we see David really exemplifying here, especially among all the nations around them? It's one word covenant. It is their covenant that made them unique. They were a nation that was not built upon just raw power. You see, if you are a nation built just upon raw power and an authoritarian who holds that power, well then that authoritarian must uh, make sure that there is no one who is a threat to that power. So they might hold all authority without challenge. But not so in Israel. The king did not hold all authority. God did. God holds all authority. The king and the people and whoever the king would be next were all in covenant with one another and in covenant with one another under God. And God had given them his law. He had given them his expectations. They were a society which was based upon covenant. And so it was because of that covenant that it made them unique. And it is because of covenant that David wants to show kindness to Mephibosheth instead of just making sure that he gets rid of any challengers to his throne. We're going to look at this story and consider what we have to learn from it through a framework of three key words. The first one is kindness. The second is interest. And then the third is table. A great way to learn how to read the Bible and make sure you're getting what's going on there is learning how to identify keywords. So that's the three today, kindness, interest, and table. So let's begin by looking at kindness and understanding what kindness means in this passage, what we can learn from it. You know, there's this uh, similar theme that you see in a lot of adventure movies, whether it be Indiana Jones, or whether it be The Goonies, or, or any of these other adventure-type movies where they're going on this, uh, this quest to maybe discover something or to get to a destination. They come to a point in time where they are blocked from moving forward in their journey. There's a wall, or there's a door, there's a passage that they cannot get through without having some kind of a secret key or a code. And they've got to get that key. They've got to get the code. They have to decipher, um, you know, what they need in order to unlock that door or open that passage and continue on in their journey. Well, whenever we look at this story here, you know, we often feel like there's a lot of doorways or obstructions between us and understanding God's word sometimes, right? Because it's far removed from our context, and sometimes it's difficult to connect it to our experience. Well, I'm going to tell you, here is what the secret code is. Here's the key to unlock the door so that we can see all the significance that there is for us in this passage. It's verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8, are the, they're the key, they're the secret code to understanding this passage and um, reaping its treasures, in verse 7, here's what it says. We're going to look at verse 7 first, and then in the next part, we're going to look at verse 8. In verse 7, here's what David says. He says, don't be afraid, he says to Mephibosheth. Now, why would he say that? Put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes. Remember, he, he is the grandson of Saul. He's the only remaining heir. Moreover, he is powerless. He's a cripple. He's defenseless before the king. Put yourself in his shoes. You'd be afraid. Because remember, you know what all the cultural expectations are pointing to and expecting David to do. But he comes before David and David says, don't be afraid. Since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Do you think he was expecting that? Do you think anyone else was expecting that? He comes before him and he says, I want to show you kindness. David intends to show kindness. The word that is used every time that David talks about it uh, in this passage, every time in the beginning and then in verse 7, where he says, I want to show kindness, the word that is being used there is a large and important word in the Old Testament, which is hesed. Hold on to that for just a moment. We're going to talk about it more in a second. But he's saying, Mephibosheth, I intend to show you hesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So why does he want to show him kindness instead of just getting rid of a threat or challenger to his throne? He says it clearly. He says, because of Jonathan. Now, what is it about Jonathan that makes him want to show this, uh, this kindness and give these gifts to Mephibosheth? Well, if you remember, we've got to go somewhat of a ways back, but if you remember, Jonathan was the son of Saul, right? Now, Saul and and David eventually became enemies because Saul was trying to kill David whenever he realized that David was going to be the successor to his throne. Um, So he chases David into the wilderness. But even despite the breaking that happened between David and Saul, between David and Jonathan, Saul's son, there was an intimate friendship between the two of them, a deep relationship. And it was a relationship that was made that was uh, made even deeper and was in a sense formalized and strengthened by a covenant that the two men made with one another. Especially whenever their relationship was threatened because of now the divide between the house of Saul and the house of David, they made a covenant with one another that no matter what, they would remain faithful to one another. They would show love to one another, kindness to one another. No matter what. We see in, uh, if you go back, we see in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42. In their last meeting with one another, Jonathan says to David before they part ways, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord. He's They had made this pledge before and he's reminding them. He says, you can go in assurance of this because we made this pledge. I'm not going to come chasing after you. I'm not going to go after your household or your descendants. And I know you will do the same for me. He says, the pledge we made in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me between my offspring and your offspring forever. David now, fast forward, upwards, a decade, decade and a half maybe, remembers that covenant and that pledge that he made with Jonathan all those years before. A long time has passed between this covenant and where David is right now. A long time has passed. A lot has happened. There are no pressures on David to honor this covenant. He holds the authority. He, no one's expecting him to. It's likely that no one even knew because they had made these covenants together whenever they were out in the wilderness. No one even knew about these pledges between David and Jonathan and between their households and the peace, the relationship that would be between them even whenever David reigned. There he is. No one knows, most likely. There's no pressure on him. There's nothing for him to gain from showing kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth has nothing. He's a cripple. He has no possessions. Because of Saul's foolishness, his grandfather, they lost all their family wealth. David has nothing to gain, no pressure on him to do it. There is nothing binding him to doing what he does here, to showing kindness other than this, said. You remember that word that I said? is so important to remember, Hesed is the only motivating factor, the only thing that obligates David to fulfill his covenant. You know what Hesed is? It's often translated. Here it's translated as kindness. But in other places in the Old Testament, it is translated as covenantal love. It's translated very often as loving kindness. It is the kind of covenantal love, loving kindness, kindness that the people of God receive whenever uh, God pours his grace upon them, whenever he redeems them, delivers them, sustains them, protects them, despite them not meriting it, despite them not earning it. Every time that they would start to follow after false idols and then eventually be overtaken and oppressed by some uh, nation in the book of Judges, but then they'll cry out to the Lord and the Lord would come and deliver them. They didn't deserve it. They had gotten themselves into that situation. And no one's twisting God's arm. Who can tell God what to do? Why would he come to rescue them? Hesed. Because he had made a covenant with them. Time and time again. What is it that, that uh, motivates and obligates David to do this? Nothing other than Hesed. Covenantal love. There's an Old Testament scholar named Bill T. Arnold, and he helps us to understand the significance of this word and all that it means. He says, this term, has said has theological significance throughout the Old Testament, denoting the life-sustaining grace of God bestowed on humans and making it possible to have a loving relationship with him. More generally, kindness characterizes covenant relationships between God and humans, or simply among humans. Therefore, it can be translated in many ways. Grace, loyalty, faithfulness, love, mercy, goodness. What makes chesed an act of kindness is often the fact that one member in the relationship is in a position to render help or aid to the other, who is for one reason or another in need or unable to help or aid the other. Chesed is what is being transferred from David to Mephibosheth here. One member who does not receive or need the help of the other, rendering aid and kindness to the one who is in need, simply for no other reason than covenantal love, covenantal kindness. It's the kind of grace, love, and kindness that we receive from God. So our first point is this. Covenantal love is exhibited in unconditional kindness. Covenantal love is exhibited in, un, in an unconditional kindness. Like I said before, the nature of our relationship with God is one of Hesed. Look over your life and reflect on all the ways that God has provided for you. Reflect on all the ways that He has been so good to you. The, the times where you felt hopeless and He sends light on the horizon. The time where you felt like all doors were closed and that he made a way. Or the the times whenever you were surely beyond forgiveness. You were surely beyond the pale of receiving kindness from God. And yet he forgives still. Yet he shows kindness still. Reflect on all the ways that he has blessed you and your family. He's blessed you in your life. How, you know, despite the... Forgive me. But despite all the, the moron-like things that you do, he still has placed you in such a good spot. Even if it's not where you exactly want to be, whenever you reflect on, on your choices and your wisdom and some of the things you've done, you realize, oof, it's a lot better than I deserve. All of these things that we've experienced from the Lord is his kindness outflowing from his chesed. His gracious love for you, which is not based upon your merit, which is not based upon your earning, which is not based upon some outside pressure that forced him into showing kindness upon you. It is simply just an outflow of his heart to you. Christian, no matter what you go through in your life today, no matter what you experience, if you are in Christ, here is a truth we have. It's sometimes hard to grasp or receive, it is nevertheless true. You are only and always experiencing God's goodness. Even whenever we experience what we feel like in the moment are setbacks or disappointments, we are only ever experiencing God's goodness because we deserved the blade. We are the challengers to his throne, the sinners who do not deserve his kindness and goodness. But rather than receiving the judgment, rather than receiving his wrath, every time we receive something else, it is only his goodness. It is only his mercy and his love for us. The nature of your relationship with God is one of hesed, and it is always in hesed even on the weeks where you feel like, or on the days where you feel like you've, you've been sinning real bad, right, you've been giving into temptation, or you haven't been as consistent as you have been in your daily Bible readings, in your prayer times, and you're starting to feel spiritually dry, you're feeling far from the Lord, and you're thinking to yourself, I must be on kind of icy terms with God right now. Maybe in the same way that you go through periods where you feel like you're on icy terms or with your spouse or you and a friend are going through a rocky situation and you think, well, surely that's where I'm at with the Lord right now. No, 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 no. You might be feeling spiritually dry, but the Lord is still warm with Hesed for you. But what does it mean for us as we receive God's love and kindness and his has said? What does it mean for us as we live as the recipients of this? What it means is that as we have received it, then we must fulfill our obligations to show kindness to those in which we are covenanted. This is how we live this out and apply this in our lives. Fulfill your obligations to show kindness to those in which you are covenanted. You have covenantal relationships in your life right now. If you are married, you are in a covenantal relationship, right? Where there has been clear promises made, obligations that have been promised to one another uh, without any, uh, with unconditional terms. You are in covenantal relationships with, with your spouse. With those who you are in deep friendships with, you know, you might not have made an actual pledge where you saw some animals in half and walked in between them like Abraham did with the Lord or like David and Jonathan most likely did. Maybe you and your friends haven't done that, but you grow to a a place of intimacy. You grow to a place of closeness where you know I would do anything for this brother or for this sister, and I know that they would do anything for me. And maybe you tell each other that, and maybe you remind each other of that whenever You're going through difficult times. And so even if you didn't say it explicitly, you know there's a covenantal bond between us. Fulfill your obligations to that bond in your friendships. If you are a member of this church, we practice covenantal membership in this church. We make oaths. We commit ourselves to one another. Therefore, if you are a member of Redeemer, you have covenantal obligations to those here whom you are in that relationship with. So consider and reflect on all these different covenantal relationships that you have in your life and ask yourself, how well have I been showing his How well have I been showing his Have I been there for them whenever they needed it? Maybe whenever it asked some sacrifice of me. Whenever I knew that one of my fellow church members was going through a hard time, whether it be just emotionally in their life, whether it be financially, whether them uh, maybe going through some sin. I knew about it, but I withheld some said I withheld showing some kindness in the emotional sacrifice it would take to bear their burden with them, with the financial sacrifice it would take to give them a helping hand. Did you withhold said in that moment? Maybe in your friendships, ask yourself, have I been fulfilling my obligations to them by showing them has said, by being a dependable friend, by being someone who your friends absolutely know that your yes means yes and your no means no. Your I will be there means I will be there. Even down to the things of I will be there at this time means they know means I will be there at this time. They trust in you. They depend on your word because you hold to it, you're obligated to it. Same with your spouses, with your children, with your parents, your siblings, all those in which you're covenanted. Have you been showing that kindness? Have you been fulfilling your obligations? So the second key word that I want us to consider here in this passage is interest, interest. Like I said before, to open up the secret passageway, and to be able to reap and pillage the treasures that there are hidden behind the door, sometimes we need that code or we need that key to unlock the door. And I said it's verses seven and eight. We already looked at verse seven, but I think verse eight as well is the key that helps us to be able to enjoy the privileges, uh, the treasures, the feasts that there are for us to savor in this passage. In verse eight, after David says to Mephibosheth, Don't fear because I'm showing you kindness. I'm going to restore to you all that you lost that should have been yours. So all, all of Saul's fields, all of his wealth, all of his servants, you're receiving all of that. And more than that, you're going to eat at my table always. After he says this to Mephibosheth, you can almost see the shocked look on his face as he sits on the ground before the king in the, in the king's throne room. Expecting a death sentence, but hearing that instead. instead that's, a, that's a jaw-dropping moment. You can almost see his pale, surprised face. And maybe tears welling up in his eyes as he says, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? He cannot believe it. I bet I bet there were a lot of other surprised faces in there. Maybe no one could believe it, what just happened. It defied all cultural expectations. It defied what anyone would have, would have thought of David, where he showed this kindness. He says, what is your servant that you would take an interest in someone like me? What is it that will make David take interest in him? Once again, David had been sitting comfortably, securely on his throne. All that belonged to the former king, to the former house, former kingdom, could have been his for the taking. All that wealth, he could have taken it. No one would have stopped him. No one would have thought of anything. No one would have questioned any of it. He didn't need to go out of his way to search down for Mephibosheth to see if there's anyone left in the house of Saul to find Ziba and bring Ziba into him. He had plenty of other things to do. But he takes an interest in this crippled man who came from the wrong family, who can do nothing or offer anything to David. And yet David has an interest in him. What is it that causes him to take an interest in this poor crippled man? It is this. His interest was the natural outflow of his covenantal love. Because he had that covenantal love for Jonathan and the household of Jonathan, that is what caused him to take an interest in Mephibosheth. It was his love and his determination to show grace and kindness to the household of Jonathan, despite the merit of any of them that made him take interest. So therefore, you see, because of hesed, Because of that covenantal love that David had, the loving kindness, because of his said, whereas other kings might have seen in Mephibosheth a threat, whereas other kings might have seen in Mephibosheth just someone who was of no significance at all, who could have just been left in the house that he was in, in in the backwater town that he was in, whereas other kings would have seen a threat or someone of no significance, David saw someone that he wanted at his table. And because David, in his best of moments like this, we'll see David in some of his not best moments as we move forward. But whereas David in his best moments, more than any other figure or or, or any other king in the Old Testament, points us forward to Jesus and shows us what the true king is like. Whenever we ask, what is our king like? And what is our king's heart like? What does our king take interest in That question can be answered. The treasure to be enjoyed is here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Our second big point is that Jesus' heart is drawn to the crippled and the lame. Jesus' heart and what he takes interest in, what he is naturally drawn to is revealed here in David's actions whenever he takes an interest in Mephibosheth. All of our hearts Are drawn to something, right? And it's usually an outflow of who you are and your character, or it's an outflow of your affections and what you love. But all of our hearts are drawn to something. Maybe your heart, the natural outflow draws you to adventure. Maybe in your heart, the natural outflow draws you to comfort and to you know, the simple pleasures of, of foods, desserts, or so on, or to entertainment. Or we also find that our hearts have a natural outflow in drawing to certain kinds of people, and then sometimes not other kinds of people. Reflect on your heart and the ways that you are drawn, and then compare it to Jesus's. Typically our hearts are drawn to those that we find attractive in one way or another. Attractive because they can offer us something, attractive because uh, uh, because we want to be in the kind of social circles and to be seen with people like that, or attractive because we just we enjoy their company. But for someone who doesn't follow fit into any of those categories usually, they can't offer us anything, they're not really in the social status or circles that we want to be in or maybe you know, we, we're just not those kind of people who just hit it off naturally. Or maybe we're afraid that being in a relationship with that kind of person might end up costing me something at a certain point. Our hearts pull away. What about Jesus' heart? Does Jesus' heart move towards the kind of person who can give him something? Does Jesus' heart, is it drawn? Is the natu- does the natural outflow of it cause him to move toward The people who might cost him something or to move him away from them. Jesus' heart is drawn to. The natural outflow of it moves him in the direction of those who are in need of help. It moves him and draws him. It pulls him towards the crippled and the lame. But who are the crippled and the lame? It's an important question to ask. We shouldn't assume. Who are they? These kind of people that Jesus' heart is naturally drawn to. One way we might say it, other than just cripple and lame, his heart is drawn to the sinners and to the sufferers. When we speak of the cripple and the lame, we are neither talking about those who are proud in their sin. Because we know from reading scripture that God rejects those who are proud in their sin, who, who, who take pride in it, who love it, who, uh, who, who relish in not following him. And living in obedience to him. The crippled and the lame are not those who are proud in their sin, neither are they those who are proud in their righteousness. We see Jesus in the gospels regularly reject those who would be proud in their righteousness, who would see themselves as someone who who really naturally deserved some of that goodness from God, who had merited some of it, who had earned some of it. They are not the cripple and the lame either. Who are the cripple on the lane that Jesus are drawn to? They are those who recognize their broken state in their sinfulness and rely on the grace of the king. They are those who know their brokenness. The ones who are proud in their righteousness don't identify with Mephibosheth. They don't identify with the sinners and the sufferers. They don't see themselves as that way. They see themselves as good, as righteous, as Strong, not someone who needs a handout, who needs grace. Likewise, those who are proud in their sin do not see themselves as broken. They love it. But those who recognize their brokenness and their sinfulness, who recognize the fracturing that their sin has caused in their lives, the separation that their sin has caused between them and God, who recognize how far below the standard of God's righteousness they have fallen, how far off the mark they have landed from the target of obedience to the Lord. For those who recognize their brokenness in that sinful state and see, spiritually speaking, I am lame. Spiritually speaking, I am a cripple. Spiritually, I am a Mephibosheth. I am a Lazarus in the tomb. I am a I am a leper before the Lord. Who, who has n- nothing in my own? Own merits and nothing in my own standing and in my state to offer before him or to claim his kindness for those people christ's heart goes out to them here's what that means just consider what this means many of us christians let me speak to the christians first many many of you christians and this applies to you even if you're not a christian yet we start to recognize that brokenness in our lives. We see that sinfulness that we have been indulging. We recognize how we have been grieving the Holy Spirit. So put it in another way. We have been grieving the Holy Spirit in our our indulgence in sin, temptation, or in our neglect to relationship with our Father. And we start to think that because of those things, because we because we really have been performing our best, because we really haven't been as strong as we would like to be, because we know that we have not been following Christ with all of our heart, so uh, repenting from our sin, we start to think, you know, surely he's upset with me. Surely he started to turn his back on me. Surely the Lord doesn't want me crawling back to him again. And so we then stay away. So then we, we start to build up a wall between our heart and the loving spirit of God. He wants to remove that sin. He wants to forgive that sin, wash away that guilt and shame, and restore us. Friends, listen. Anytime that we feel, we feel distant from God, it is not because he has pulled away from us, but because our hearts have pulled away from him. He always stands more ready and more eager to renew and to restore, to quench the thirst, right? To heal the brokenness that is there than even our own hearts are. This is a trick that Satan plays on you. The greatest deceit that Satan can um, pass on you in your day-to-day life is this. You thinking that God's heart is pulled away from you because of your sin, We often think that Satan's greatest trick or the greatest thing he can do to us is to indulge in some kind of sin, to go on a temptation bender of some sort. And that's the worst thing that he can do to us. That's not the worst thing he can do. The worst thing he can do is make you harbor twisted and dark thoughts about God's heart. That God's heart is pulled away from you. That Jesus' heart isn't drawn to the sinners and the sufferers like you. But that instead he, he recoils at someone like you. That's the worst thing that Satan often gets us to believe, more so than us indulging in any sin or temptation. So that whenever we sin or whenever we are, are broken, we then don't go to the Lord. So here's what this means. It means recognize your sinful state before the king and then understand that he is drawn to you. So go to him. Recognize your sinful state before the king. It's easy for us to fall into one of those categories which I said are not the cripple, to start to become comfortable and complacent in our sin or or to become proud in our righteousness. We need to often remember our sinful state before the Lord, how how every, how, uh, every advance in the faith and how even every progress in our character praise the Lord for those things. We want those things and we rejoice in them, but even those are by his grace. Even our efforts are fueled by his empowerment from the Holy Spirit. You need constant reminders of your neediness before God the Father, even for your acts of righteousness. Wherever you do, hallelujah, give all credit to the Lord. Recognize your sinful state before the king. And then remember, it is not your sinful state which bars you from his heart, but that it is the very thing that his heart goes towards. Uh, Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, wrote this. He said, When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. Friends, we have a gentle king, we have a loving Savior. We have a God, our King, who, who has nothing but has said for you and I. So that when we come to those moments where we think to ourselves, how in the world, or upon what grounds, or how after the umpteenth time that I've gotten myself here, could the King take an interest in a dead dog like me? You have the answer why he takes an interest in you because it is exactly in that state that you're in that he is most drawn to you. So don't hold yourself back. Don't let those barriers and those doors remain closed, but open them up to the spirit of Christ, which is one of grace and love, kindness and gentleness for you. The last key word in this passage is table. Several times in this passage, I think, if if I remember right, it it says four times, okay? You remember I said before, one way you get real good at reading the Bible is learning how to pick up keywords. Here's the best way to see, uh, to to, to discover important keywords, if they say it again and again. (laughs) You read, and if you start to see the same word, even one that seems somewhat insignificant, like table, but it says it over and over and over again, look, you don't have to know Hebrew to know, okay, there's something there, all right? And four times in this passage, it says Mephibosheth will always eat at the king's table. David says it to him. uh, It says it again later. He will have a seat at the king's table. And it says he will have a seat at the king's table and eat and sit there in in the relationship in the palace for all of his days like one of the king's sons. Consider the movement in terms of uh, status in place for Mephibosheth in this short little story. In, in, in this short chapter uh, uh, in Second Samuel, we see him go from living in the house of a nobody, right? Who's that guy? That, you, know, you say he was in the house of Micah in this town that you never heard of. He's, he's, he literally came from nowhere from the house of nobody. Cripple and lame. No property, no wealth. To at the end of the passage, the wealth of the previous kingdom. Is now his, right? Even Zeba, all of his sons and all of Zeba's uh, servants are now his, so that they maintain that wealth, and that wealth becomes something that generates more wealth, right? That, that's what he just got, right? It's like it's like better than winning a million dollars. You receive a company that generates five billion a year. Like that's what he got, right? And he's no longer in nowhere in the house of nobody, but he's in Jerusalem in the house of the king, eating and living like one of the king's sons. Now he has, he has royal status in Jerusalem. Why? Because David showed his said to him through relationship, restoration, and raising his status. He shows it to him in relationship. There is now peace between them. You remember he came in afraid, and David said, don't be afraid. He's restoring that relationship between them. But the, the 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 fissure that there was between the house of David and the house of Saul, David has now healed and brought together in that relationship. Moreover, like I said, he receives all that was lost because of his grandfather's foolishness. More so, even his crippled state was something that had come about because of his grandfather's foolishness. If you go back and read, it's actually Whenever Saul had finally fallen at, uh, in, in the battle of Mount Geboa, there was this terror that spread and people started, uh, you know, fleeing towns, cities because they thought the Philistines were coming in to wipe them out. And Mephibosheth was just a boy at this time. And it said that his nurse in the chaos and frantic um, moment and in the terror dropped him. And that is what made both of his feet lame. He's crippled because of Saul He's poor because of Saul. He's a nobody because of Saul. But because of the chesed of David, all has been restored. And the moreover, like I said, he is raised to a royal status. Here's the last thing that that we learn and see through Mephibosheth being given a seat at the table of the king. The gospel is the good news that we are not merely pardoned nor pitied by God but that we are adopted as his sons and are seated at his table. When we talk about the gospel, we often talk about the forgiveness of sin that we receive, that the record of debt that we owed before the Lord and that the wrath that we should have received has all been pardoned away. The debt has been paid for the wrath that should have been yours is changed from a sentence of guilty to a sentence of, 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 of not guilty, right? We have been pardoned by God because of our sin, Praise the Lord because of these things. But we need to also emphasize that the gospel, that the Father goes even farther than that in the good news of the gospel. Because he does not just pardon us. I often tell people, you know, we, have, we sing songs and we often say things like, the gospel is the ultimate second chance. Wrong. It is not a second chance. It is a restoration to a new status that is yours forever. You are not just pardoned from your sin to get a second chance and go sin again. If if God was just giving us a second chance, we would have blown it already. You are pardoned and you are raised from from being a nobody coming from nowhere to being a son and daughter of the king, receiving a seat at his table that will be yours forever. This is the gospel. But how is it that we, Like Mephibosheth, who are spiritual cripples, who are spiritually lame, who, moreover, are rebels, who are challengers to God's authority in our sin, in breaking his law, and in going after false gods and idols. How is it that we might receive a seat at the Lord's table? Here's why. Or how. Because Jesus received sinners and sufferers, the cripple and the lame, at his table. Those are the kind of people that Jesus received at his table. And because in his last night before his crucifixion, he sat at a table with sinners and sufferers, and he picked up a cup and said to them, this cup is my blood, which is being poured out for you. So why do we get a seat at that table? Where is, how how is it that God has said to us, which, which is drawn to us and wants us to sit at the table, what makes it possible for us to because of our sinfulness, because of our spiritual crippledness. because Jesus raised up that cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you. Because after that, he would go to the cross, and his blood would be poured out for us, his body would be broken for us, and he would experience upon himself in his own body the wrath of God that should have been ours the the sentence of guilty that should have been declared over you and i the the uh, the the pain that should have been ours in receiving the wrath of God, Jesus swallowed those things up in his own body and he laid them to death in his own grave so that instead of receiving the death penalty, so that instead of receiving God's wrath and being sent to an eternal punishment in hell so that we might be made whole so that our wounds might be healed so that our lame feet might be straightened out and strengthened. Jesus went to the cross for us. And this is how we are then raised up from our, from our status of being in sin, being a nobody from nowhere, to having a seat at the table of the king. Friends, do you recognize your sinful state before the Lord? Because that is what is necessary. You must recognize your sinful state and that you have no hope before God. You have no hope in life or death other than the grace of God accomplished for us on the cross and made effective by the Holy Spirit applying it to your life. That we need that grace and then that we cast ourselves upon that grace. Have you done that? Have you recognized your sinful state and then cast yourself down before the foot of the cross saying I have no other grounds to come before the Lord other than Jesus' blood which has soaked these beams. And then have you claimed your seat at the table? Because he wants to give you one. But you must go to him, cast yourself upon his grace, and then take your seat at the table. Let me implore you, whether you are just a weary Christian, or whether you are maybe going to receive the grace of God for the first time today, accept his grace. See yourself in Mephibosheth going before the king and recognize that this is the storyline that God wants for your life. The experience of Mephibosheth, he wants to be your experience. Accept his grace. Walk in his grace in obedience. After he heals you, he strengthens you so that you may walk now in a transformed manner, in a way that you had never been possible before. Walk, accept his grace. Walk in it in obedience. Use the various means of grace. The most important of those, don't abandon the table that he has put before you, which is the church. Here is where, and perhaps more than any other spiritual discipline we can practice, here is where we all come and we take our seats at the Lord's table. As we all come in here as, as spiritual cripples, spiritual blind. Uh, weary from our previous week, or maybe coming in on victory from our previous week, coming in with all of our scars, with all of our wounds, with all of, all, all of our imperfections, with all of our foolishness. And yet we all come in here and there's a seat for you, a seat that the Holy Spirit has put your name upon, written in the blood of Christ. So don't neglect this. We come and we sit at the spiritual table of the Lord, going before him and communing with him in that relationship that he has restored in worship together. And then, and then enjoying like a fine meal, his grace and his goodness and his kindness being poured out upon us through his word and through his spirit moving in our worship. Don't neglect any of the means of grace, but friends especially, do not neglect the grace of sitting at the Lord's table week to week in corporate worship with one another. After all, it's one of our covenant obligations which we must fulfill for the sake of his Son.
0: Let's pray. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.